God's holy word. This afternoon, we'll first of all read together from the first book of Samuel, chapter 17. So, 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to read in verse 38 through to the end of verse 50. So we're reading a portion from the story about David and Goliath. David has gone to visit the camp to see how his brothers are doing, sent there by his own father to bring something to his brothers, and he hears Goliath boasting about his strength, and he sees that the Israelite army is in disarray, and they are standing in fear and dread before the big man, Goliath. And David is upset, he's angry, and he offers to fight Goliath. And the section we'll read together is a section where David goes and indeed fights against Goliath, and God gives him the victory. So beginning at verse 38, they read God's word as follows, And then Saul clothed David... So this is after uh, David has talked to King Saul, and, and, and Saul has agreed to let David go and fight Goliath. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, uh, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David uh, put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So far, our reading from God's Word. Let us sing together in response to the Word of God. This afternoon, we'll find our text from the book of Numbers. 
We'll turn to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10. We'll read together verses 11 through 28 and 33 to 36. The people of Israel are about to leave Mount Sinai. And there is a little portion that we're going to, going to skip where Moses is dealing with his own father-in-law. And we'll skip that and we'll go to, to the next part. So verse 11, the read God's word. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. And they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And over, the, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Ishaskar was Nathanel, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Elijah, the son of Sadur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shalumiel, uh, the son of Zerushaddai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Elisaph, the son of Duel. And then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. And over their company was Elishama, the son of Minahud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of uh, Padashur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gidonai. Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies. And over their company was Ahizer, the son of Meshadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pegiel, the son of Okran. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enan. This was the the order of march of the people of Israel by their companies. Then they set out. And then we'll skip to the verse 33. And so they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the thousand, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So far, reading God's word. 
congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to the beginning of this book in chapter 2, there the Lord instructed the people of Israel how they should arrange their camp when they were camping there in the wilderness. In chapter 2 of this, of this book, we see that God set the camp up in such a way as, as a king would set up his camp, where the king would put his tent in the very center of the camp. And so Israel was to set the tabernacle, which is God's tent, in the very center of the camp. The camp is set up like a, a war camp with the tent in the, where God dwelled in the very center. The Levites uh, were surrounding the camp, protecting the holiness of God, and around the Levites, all around the temple, the tribes of Israel encamped. And as a protective barrier around God, protected him as the great king of Israel. But not only does the Lord organize his camp as a, a war camp, but he also instructs the people of Israel that he is the great warrior king who will go ahead of his people and who will lead them into battle. And so in this chapter, in chapter 10, as the people of Israel are about to leave from Mount Sinai, and they're about to go to the promised land. And as, they set out on, and as they set out on this journey, they will face many powerful enemies in the, there in, in the wilderness. And when they enter into the promised land of Canaan, there they will also be confronted with many powerful nations that they will need to conquer and to destroy. And so those, those enemies, those world powers that they, will, that they will face is too powerful for the people of Israel to fight themselves. After all, Israel is but a small and defenseless nation over against those nations. Israel doesn't even have a, a regular army. And so, humanly speaking, it would seem that they would be crushed in a moment by the power of their own enemies. But what we read here in our text is that the Lord God himself goes ahead and he marches in front of his people as the warrior king. And with his power, God will defeat and crush those mighty enemies of Israel. And as they march out in formation, just as God instructs them to do that, God also gives to them this blessed assurance that he is the God who will go ahead of them. He is the God who will also fight for his people, Israel. The assurance that God gives here now to his Old Testament people, beloved, is the same assurance that you now receive as a New Testament church of our Lord Jesus Christ. For today we have a great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our great king, Jesus Christ, who leads us into the spiritual battle in this world in which we are living. And so this afternoon, I will, we will listen to God's word under this theme. The great king leads his church into battle. So our theme, the great king leads his church into battle. And we'll look at five things. First of all, we see that the king leads. Secondly, that we must learn to trust the king. Thirdly, we'll look at this is a spiritual kingdom that the Christ is, is, is bringing Third, in the fourth place, we'll look at a spiritual warfare. In the fifth place, we'll see that the victory is assured. The people of Israel has been, have been camped at Mount Sinai for almost a year. 
when we're told in our text that the cloud that was over the tabernacle, representing the presence of the Lord God there in the tabernacle, began to rise up. And as the the cloud began to rise up, uh, the people broke camp, and they set out from the desert of Sinai following the cloud. As the cloud went ahead of them, followed the cloud from place to place, until finally the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. Verse 14 and following also tells us more specifically about the order in which uh, the camp began their march there onto the land of Canaan, the promised land. You notice how God is very, very specific about the way in which they are to, to order themselves as they travel through the wilderness. Verse 33 says that the ark, which represented God's presence and God's throne in the midst of Israel, the ark was carried by the priest, and it went first in that procession. We know that the ark normally would rest in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And it represented that that was the place where God had his earthly throne in the midst of the people of Israel. And that ark, well, the ark was a box that was covered with pure gold. And above the, that box, there was the cherubim, representing the, those were the, the two angels, representing the two angels that, that had their wings stretched out over the mercy seat. And they were there acting as God's protectors. And so that ark represents that God is indeed present with his people Israel. And so when when the Levites, who now carried the ark in front of the the whole procession of Israel, that was a clear, visible sign for the people of Israel that it is the Lord God who is leading them here through the wilderness. And then God instructs after the ark, now the divisions of the camp of Judah was to go first, and that division, or, or that standard of Judah, with Judah they also marched the tribes of Issachar and Zebulun. So you notice here, Judah is the one who leads the nation as they follow behind the ark of God. And you can say that God here already is telegraphing, that Judah is the one who's going to lead the nation. And that's also why later on, God raises up David from Judah to be the king of Israel. And one day, the great king, Jesus Christ, will also come, and he too will come from the tribe of Judah. And then next we're told that the tabernacle itself was taken down, and two Levite families, the Gershonites and the Merites, uh, we're instructed by God to uh, take down the tabernacle and to, and to carry it, and they are to march behind the standard of Judah. And immediately following these priests came the camp of Reuben, Reuben together with the tribes of Simeon and Gad. And then following the standard of Reuben, there were the Kohathites, which were another Levite family. And God instructs them to carry the holy things from the tabernacle. The holy things here are the furniture in the tabernacle, such as the incense altar and the, and the showbread table and, uh, and the candlestick that was in the holy place. 
And so you notice there is a separation between the tabernacle itself being carried and the furniture in the, in, in the tabernacle that will be carried later on. And the reason we're told is that the first group of priests, priests were to go first with the tabernacle. And when they made camp, they were to set up the tabernacle. And so when they had finished setting up the tabernacle, uh, then finally the furnishings would arrive. And when the furnishings arrive, the tabernacle will be ready for the furnishings to be placed within it. What it, re- what it reveals for us is the great care that God takes also with his holy things, so that a place is prepared for them already beforehand. And then follows the camp of Ephraim, which included the tribes of Manasseh and Benjamin. And finally, at the rear, there was a camp of Dan that included the tribes of Asher and Naphtali. Verse 33 says that they marched from the mountain of the Lord, and they traveled for three days. And the ark of the covenant went before the people, find a place for them to rest or find a place of rest. So what's God doing here? Well, God is making very visible and making very clear for his people that he is the one who is leading them through the wilderness. God is going ahead of them, you can say, as a mighty warrior uh, to, to lead the way and to fight for them and to protect them from the danger of their enemies. And so Moses, here in our chapter, also clearly identifies the Lord God as the very warrior king of Israel in verse 35. There you read that whenever the ark set out and God was leading his people, then before they set out, then Moses would say with a loud voice in the company of all of Israel, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And so when the camp of Israel set out, the people would begin, with, they, would, they would set out, first of all, with a call on the Lord. Lord, lead us, direct us through the wilderness, lead us into the battle against our enemies. And that was necessary, because we know later on that indeed in their march across the wilderness, they will face some mighty enemies. And so later on in this book, you read how God gave them victories over the, the Canaanite king of Ered. That God defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, as well as the Midianites. And this morning we saw also the fear that God placed in the heart of the king of Moab. And so as the warrior king went before the people, he indeed, he scattered and destroyed the nations before him. And then if you go a little bit further into their history and they cross the Jordan River and they enter into the promised land, there too again the Lord fought for his people, destroying first of all the fortress city of Jericho and then destroying all the other nations there in the land. Now as we we reflect on God's mighty work for his people, something that we need to keep in mind here is that God is also using this wilderness wanderings as as a tool by which he wants to teach the people of Israel about himself. He is preparing them for life in the new land. You've read that explicitly already in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where God indeed says that he's humbled them and he made life difficult for them in order that they might also learn all the more to put their trust in the Lord their God. 
And the thing that we need to kind of notice here in this particular text is that the Lord God has given his people Israel a deeper understanding. A deeper understanding about himself as their God. What Israel needs to begin to learn about their Lord and about their God is that the Lord God is their redeemer, that he is their deliverer. Right? When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, what's God revealing to his people? For the rest of their history, they'll remember God as the God who came to his people and, and delivered them, how God acted as their savior, as, as their redeemer. And what's happening here is that God has given to his people a, a deeper understanding about himself than what the people back in the days of the book of Genesis had received from God. You see, in the book of Genesis, and we think of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God came to, to them and God entered into a covenant. In that covenant, God also gave them wonderful promises. Promises that he would make them a great nation, a great people, but also promised he would give this land, this promised land, uh, to them. But you know that those are promises that were not completely or fully uh, fulfilled in their time. And so what is God teaching Israel now here in the wilderness is that he is the God who also fulfills his promise. For he is the God who delivers them, not only out of Egypt, but who also is going to fulfill the promise by giving to them the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so the people of Israel need to also now be thinking about the Lord their God as the one who delivers and the God who, is, who saves his people. And now that God has delivered Israel, God shows them that he establishes himself as the king of Israel the one who will then also rule over this nation. God delivered Israel for one reason, that they might be his people, but that they might also, he might also make them into a, a new kingdom, his kingdom. But this kingdom of Israel, they were living in a world where there were many other kingdoms and where there were many other enemies. And that's why... The Lord God, as the king of Israel, organized Israel into a war camp that he might protect them from the enemies. And that's why God marches before his people. That's why he leads them through enemy territory. And when he leads them, he also defends them from their enemies. For he is the king of that new kingdom who are his own people. And so the way that, that the Lord God is acting here in the wilderness will determine the way both the Old Testament and the New Testament church understands and thinks about and sees the Lord our God. Right? For the rest of Israel's history, the people of Israel will look up to the Lord God to lead them and to also lead them in battle over against their enemies. They will look to the God of Israel. They will look to their own God to rise up and to scatter the enemy before them. Well, this understanding about God is one that we begin to also see reflected in, in the history of, of Israel. Now, there's, it's, it's a mixed bag because sometimes they forget and other times Israel remembers that this is the God who will lead them and will enter into battle for them. 
And so we read a little while ago, we read from 1 Samuel chapter 17, a story where David faces off against the giant called Goliath. And David, in verse 45 of that chapter, says to Goliath as he confronts him and is ready to fight him, David says to Goliath, he says, you know, Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And as you reflect on those words and you see the situation there in which David was in the camp of Israel, you notice that there's a stark contrast between the attitude of David and the attitude of the people of Israel. David entered into the camp to see what was going on and to visit his brothers. And, and what does David witness? David sees that the people of Israel and then the soldiers in Israel's army, they are trembling with fear. They're petrified because of that great giant. And they're completely paralyzed, unable to move and to fight against the Philistines. And there comes this young man, David. And sometimes you might think, oh, he's a brass man. But it's not, that's deceiving. David doesn't come here and is, as a brass man and, you know, I'm a tough guy and I'm bigger than Goliath because David could see that Goliath was a big man and David himself was but a small man in stature. No, he doesn't come in his own brassness. He comes, in a sense, with humility, you can say. Why? Because he remembers. He remembers that the Lord God is the warrior king of Israel. He remembers also his church history and he remembers the lessons from the Bible. How the Lord God went before Israel there in the ark and as the God went ahead of his people, how the Lord God scattered the enemies of Israel. And David understood from those stories also from generations long ago that those enemies, they were greater and they were better equipped and they were better prepared to fight than Israel was. And yet God defeated them all. And so David, with a humble faith, he doesn't think very much of his own abilities. He's thinking about God. And so he puts his trust in the Lord. And he trusts uh, that the God of Israel will also fight Israel's battles, also here in this situation. And so what does he do? He, he puts aside the, the armor, he puts aside the sword, he's simply too cumbersome, he's not able to, to, to use that. He's not even familiar with, with fighting with, with a sword and with, with armor. No, he goes and uh, he takes a slingshot and he picks up five smooth little pebbles from the creek. And he's certain, even though, even though he doesn't have a sword, yet God will fight for him. And so humanly speaking, as you see the scene unfolding before you, there is, you can say, there's no contest. Right, Goliath, he is immensely more powerful than this small young man. And yet what does David say to Goliath? He says, Goliath, I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and the whole world will know what? The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone will know that by putting, their, their, by putting trust in their sword is not going to save them. But it is the Lord God who saves. 
And so whenever Israel would go into battle, what was important was not how many men they had in their army. What was important wasn't how many weapons they had or what kind of weapons they had or how many horses they might have. Because those are not the things that would guarantee their victory. Their victory was only guaranteed if the Lord God was on their side. And that's why the people of Israel never had to doubt their victory. That's why Israel could always go to war confident that they would win, for God is the God who would also fight for them. That's why, remember, under Gideon's leadership, Gideon had to go to war with how many men? 300. And he didn't have any swords. Didn't have any weapons to fight with. So 300 men without any weapons of war. And God uses us to 300 men in order to defeat the Midianites. Midianites who were as thick as locusts in the valley and had more camels than could be counted. God gave the victory. And so you see, beloved, the principle that is at work in this world. God commands his people to go up to the battle. He commands his people, go fight. And yet it is the Lord God who fights for his people and God who gives them the victory. Israel must fight, but God gives the victory. And that principle continues also for today. Beloved, the Lord God also calls you to faith. He doesn't only call you to faith. He is also the God who gives you faith. God calls you to fight against sin and against evil in your life. Yet it's also the Lord God who gives you the victory in that fight against sin and evil in your life. And so on the one hand, the Lord God calls us to be active. On the other hand, it's the Lord God who alone gives us the strength so that we might indeed have the victory. And in that victory, it is the Lord God who receives the glory. Now the situation you can say, has changed uh, from the Old Testament days to the New Testament days in which we're living today. Where there in the Old Testament, Israel was a nation under the rule, under the power of God. We often talk about Israel as a theocracy, namely that they were under God's rule. And so the, the fortunes of the nation was also very closely tied to the relationship that they had with the Lord their God. And so when Israel won the battle, winning that battle reflected the glory of God. And when Israel lost the battle, that dishonored the name of the Lord their God. And so in the Old Testament, God's reputation was very closely tied uh, to the nation of Israel. And therefore the Old Testament people in faith could confidently go into battle And when they put their trust in the Lord God, they could expect that they would win the victory. That's why a young man like like David, that's why he can confidently face Goliath. Because he knows the Lord God will fight for him. And the Lord God will give him the victory without a sword. But now the situation has changed with the coming of the Lord in Jesus Perhaps you remember, children, maybe you remember also the story about Palm Sunday. Remember that day when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a, on a donkey? 
And the people of his, and the people of Jerusalem welcomed him, welcomed him in with shouts of joy. Why? Because the people wanted to make him their king. They wanted to put up his throne there in Jerusalem. He would reign over Israel, and they expected he would reign over all the other nations of the earth. What did Jesus do when they offered him this seems to be his gracious offer? Jesus refused. He wanted nothing to do with being king there in Jerusalem. And so the Jews had this dream that when the Messiah would finally come, that he will again restore the glory of the nation by defeating the, the Romans and restoring the throne of King David. Christ, in that Palm Sunday, he shattered those dreams because he refused to be their earthly king. And so they quickly, they, they turned on him and they crucified him before the week was even out. And yet, and yet when you read through the Gospels, do you notice the central theme of Christ's preaching? Remember, the central theme of Christ's preaching is that the kingdom of God is here. Mark 1, verse 15, the Lord Jesus proclaims at the very beginning of his ministry, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Lord Jesus, throughout his ministry, continually proclaimed that he came as the great king, that he might establish the kingdom of, of heaven here on this earth. But Jesus also made it very clear his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, where his kingdom will transcend all the kingdoms of the earth, where it will be a spiritual kingdom. It's also clear from the way the Lord Jesus enters into the fight for us as his people. Remember when the soldiers came to arrest the Lord Jesus there in the Garden of the Gethsemane? Uh, Peter was determined to defend his Lord, and so he took out his sword. And with the sword, he defends his Lord, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And then immediately... Jesus commands Peter, Peter, put down your sword. Put it away. And then Jesus says these words. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, he says, I have not come to fight with the sword, but I've come to drink the cup of suffering the Father has given me. See, beloved, the Lord Jesus fights for us. And he goes into battle for us even today. But the Lord Jesus does not fight this battle in the conventional ways of warfare. He doesn't come with strength and with earthly power, but he enters the battle in humiliation and in great suffering. The way that Christ wins the victory is indeed foreign. It's strange to us. He would say it's the foolishness of the cross, Paul says to the Corinthians. For he won the battle through his suffering and through his death on the cross. Victory came through the cross so that now the Father has now given to him the authority and the power to establish his kingdom, not just in one place of the earth, but to establish his kingdom over the whole earth. And so what we see is that the Lord Jesus is engaged in spiritual warfare. And therefore, the weapons with which Jesus engages in battle is with his word and with his spirit. 
The amazing thing is that this word and the spirit, beloved, are far greater and much more powerful uh, than any weapons that have ever been conceived by mankind. Why? Because they're able to penetrate to the very heart of mankind, able to penetrate to the very depth of your heart, so that wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, wherever the name of the Lord Jesus is being witnessed, there our Lord Jesus is engaged in the battle for the heart of mankind. You know, when God fought against the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, God would lead the army of Israel into battle. And God, normally, he used the men of Israel as the instruments by which he would defeat the enemy. And so God expected his people Israel, yes, they were to be engaged in battle. And if they were engaged in battle, then God would also fight for them. Beloved, the same principle is true also today. You see, the spiritual warfare in this world today, it is being waged by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that we are indeed foot soldiers of Christ. We're engaged in spiritual warfare every day again. And that's why Paul then also commands us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. Why? Because there is this constant spiritual battle raging in this world. And it's a battle that's been raging already since the very beginning, after the fall and the sin. Read that, of that battle in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember there the Lord spoke uh, to the serpent about the enemy between the seed of the serpent, who represents the world and, and the powers of darkness, over against the seed of the woman, representing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that battle only increased in intensity when the Lord Jesus finally came to this world. Paul's, in Ephesians 6, verse 11, uh, commands us, he says, Put on the armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the devil's schemes. And then he goes on and he says, And be clear about this. Understand this well. That our struggles is not against flesh and against blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil there in the heavenly realms. You see, beloved, that the Lord gives to us a different understanding, and a different way of viewing the world in which we live, and a different way in which we can view our own lives. Because on the one level, what do we, what do we see? On the one level, we see nations on earth fighting and destroying one another with the conventional weapons of war. But the Lord reveals to us there's another level in which we see the devil working with his evil schemes to destroy the hearts, to destroy the souls of all of mankind. And therefore, beloved, you need to be aware that there is a constant battle taking place also for your soul. Right? The spiritual forces of darkness... They want to take over your life. And that's why Paul says it is a battle that you need to take seriously. Although we don't need to be afraid of that battle. Why? Because he says you have a great king in heaven. You have the Lord Jesus as the one who leads you in that spiritual battle. And yes, we must be, we must be taking up the battle. 
And the first place you can say we must take up the battle against the wicked temptations in our own hearts and our own lives. And you may all have different kinds of temptations, different things which you fight against. Perhaps there's some addictions that that you're dealing with. Perhaps there's other kinds of of, of sins in your life that that you have struggled with your whole life. Perhaps you have anger issues. There may be other issues in your life. Maybe just a matter of of learning to put your trust in, in, in in the Lord God. But as you fight those temptations that are present in your heart and your life, what we have here is that we may do we may take a, that we may take up that battle with confidence, confidence that we may trust that the Lord will also lead us into that battle. And as Israel never needed to worry about losing a battle when they trusted the Lord with their whole heart, that you also may be sure that when you put your trust in the Lord, you're not fighting alone. And sometimes it may be difficult. It may be hard. You may fight in the strength of the Lord, and you may also look to Him that He may give to you the victory. For after all, He has won the great battle there on Golgotha. I think in our spiritual struggles that we all are able to recognize to some degree our own weaknesses. And sometimes when we look at our own weaknesses, we may think to ourselves, how can I overcome the evil in my own life. How can I stand up against the hostile forces that are arrayed against me? We live in a world where we also see the powers of darkness gathering strength against the church and against God's people. But beloved, the wonderful gospel message is that the outcome of the battle does not depend on how strong you are doesn't depend even on how well you're able to fight. Remember, Israel did not win because they had more soldiers. They didn't win because they were better equipped than the enemy were equipped with weapons. No, they won. Because in faith, they trusted the Lord God to give them the victory. What was important was not their numbers. What was important was their faithfulness to go and to fight, believing that the Lord God was with them. And so today, the Lord, beloved, only calls you to take up the spiritual battle present in your life. And you may do so trusting that the Lord God will also be with you in that battle for the victory. The victory is assured. The spiritual battle in which we're engaged will indeed be fierce. First, we already talked about that. Uh, the battle, first of all, is in our hearts, in which we often struggle against the very sinful of desires of our, of our own flesh. We confess in the Catechism, too, that we have three sworn enemies. There's the devil, the world, and our own flesh, our own flesh. We, we often have to battle against that ourselves because it wants to lead us away from the Lord. There, too, in that battle, we may trust the Lord to, to help us. But there's also a fierce battle in this world for the souls of mankind. So that wherever you witness the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to others in your life, understand what you're doing. You're entering into the battlefield. When you witness to Christ to others, you're fighting for the souls of those to whom you're witnessing. 
But also keep in mind that the devil is also fighting to keep those souls for himself. On the other hand, we also know that the devil will often go on the offensive when he targets Christians. When he instigates people to persecute those who are believers. And so you can understand why why Paul then also commands us. He says, put on the armor of God. I know that any time any soldier goes into battle, any soldier goes to, to fight, that can be a fearful thing. Because we worry, what's going to happen? Will I win or will I lose? Will I be okay or am I going to be destroyed? And so we should never ever minimize the fierceness of this spiritual battle. For the devil and the world are determined. They are determined to win. But when you enter into the battle, beloved, we may do so understanding that the victory is already assured for our great King Jesus Christ, the one who fights for us. And he has won the victory there on Golgotha on the cross. And Scripture tells us that this battle will culminate in the great battle that is revealed in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and following. We're told that after the thousand years are over, and we're not going to get into what the thousand years are, but you can say that we're living in the midst of the thousand years today. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will, re- will be released and he will deceive the nations. The great army that he leads, that Satan leads, will be called Gog and Magog. Well, Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 symbolize the whole world that are gathered together as they begin their assault on the church of Christ. It's a, a, a great army numbering the, the sand of, uh, of the seashore. And that battle will be a great spiritual battle. But then we read that God kind of cuts the battle short because God sends his fire from heaven and he destroys the great enemy. And now the purpose for that vision in Revelation 20 is to give us that wonderful assurance that as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be sure that one day God will rise up against the enemy and God will scatter them before his great power. And he will cast them forever into the lake of burning sulfur. And so the church, the church here is a gathering of all true Christian believers. From the beginning to the end of the earth, they will triumph. For our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will lead us into the battle. At the end of our text, verse 36. We read that when the ark of God came to rest at a certain place and stopped, and the people would set up their camp, then Moses would say, Return, O Lord, uh, to the countless thousands of Israel. Those words would bring utter joy to the people. For as the people were marching through the enemy territory, God scatters the enemy before them. And finally God stops, and they stop, and they set up camp. And God gives them rest. God returns to his people. He comes and he lives in the midst of their camp. John Calvin says in this context that God is like a father. A father who dwells at home with his family. Being there for his family. Taking care of the needs of his family. Tells us, beloved, that God is not always at war. 
There are times that God gives His people rest from war. When He lives with them as a father, and Israel enjoys fellowship with the Lord their God. Because when the wilderness journeys finally came to an end, remember the Lord gave the people of Israel the promised land there in Canaan. And after they had conquered it, he gave them rest in that land. And he dwelt in their midst. And he did so later on in that glorious tabernacle built by King Solomon. And so the people of Israel, they enjoyed a period of rest in which they experienced the blessings of a father, a heavenly father who lives with them. From a New Testament perspective, You can say that in the midst of the daily struggles against the forces of sin and over against darkness. Beloved, we don't only have a God who fights for us. But you also have a God who lives in your heart. Who lives in your life. So that in the daily troubles of life, you may also experience the peace of God. God who lives in you. And then with great anticipation, we already can look forward to that day when the final battle that is revealed in Revelation 20 is won. When the enemy is destroyed and God's kingdom is established in all of its glory. Then our great King, Jesus Christ, He will come. And then He will dwell with us. And we'll see Him face to face. On that day, Members of the Church of Christ, both in the Old and the New Testament, will experience a wonderful peace. Beloved, then we'll be secure in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Then we'll be home. We'll be home with our God. Amen.